Well, good morning. You are, you're not allowed to sing, but you are allowed to say good morning. Good morning. Jolly good. Jane, that was a great story. Wasn't that great? Uh, just to be clear, when Ivan was saying, it's time, it's time, you could go now, was he planning to come with? No, no, don't answer that question. <laughs> Plead the fifth on that one. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 20 this morning. Luke 20, verses 9 to 19. It's the parable of the tenants in the vineyard. And we read this. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they took the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. This is the word of the Lord. If only God would give me a sign, said Woody Allen, like depositing a million dollars in a Swiss bank account in my name. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Have you ever been in a position where you've said, God, why don't you show yourself more clearly to me? A million pound donation in a bank account would kind of maybe convince you. But if only something spectacular would happen, I'd find it easier to believe. And the story we read is in the context of Jesus' quite spectacular healing ministry. And Jesus says, this evil generation seeks a sign. They want something spectacular. But the evidence is, only for a few of them who responded to the demands of discipleship were those signs at all effective. Most of the people who saw the miracles weren't among the early disciples. Many, possibly the majority of those who had spectacular healings, 
didn't become committee followers of Jesus. There's something about the demand for the spectacular that isn't lasting. We, want, we see one great thing, we want the next. And Jesus' contention in this parable is that God has been making himself perfectly clear. And indeed, if you go to the beginning of the book of Romans, Romans 1 to 3 is an argument that we are without excuse because God has shown himself clearly. Let me read you a verse, verse Romans 1.19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And if you follow that argument through in Romans, Paul says, look, it's really clear. Creation points to a creator God. The fact that we have this sense of good and evil and are troubled by our conscience, consciences points to the fact that the face behind the universe is a moral being. Even more, the fact that God has shown himself clearly through history gives us no excuse. And finally, he has spoken, Paul says, through a son. God, the creator of the universe, wants to enter into relationship with us. So back to the parable. This is Jesus' summary of how God has revealed himself so far. It's skimpy on details, but it is, to be fair, the Old Testament in four verses, followed by the New Testament in one, which is about the right kind of proportion, I suppose. And the parable speaks about a God who's desperate to reveal himself clearly. He sends messengers, one and then another, and if you look at the Old Testament, and another, and another, and another, and another, and another, over thousands of years to bear witness to the God who persists in loving his rebellious creation. And the theme is that these messengers are consistently misunderstood, and there is rebellion against the one who sent them. And in the story, each servant is treated worse than the one before. I mean, it is unreasonable and outrageous behavior. The next time someone comes to collect your rent, don't do this. And the messages of the human race asserting its independence against God. We don't want anything to do with you. We want to own everything. And that's the essence of what the Bible calls sin. We make the rules. And we're in a strange age at the moment where there's supposedly the freedom to believe anything you want, but definitely not Christianity. And the kind of, the, the, the amount of liberalism is very closely bounded. Step outside that bound and you're in trouble. There will be a judgment, even though we don't believe in it. The servants in the story 
fundamentally their problem was they misunderstood the motivation behind the owner. And the story of the Old Testament is that people didn't get that God loved them passionately. And this was about to conclude very soon after the parable was told in the death of Jesus, God's son. Well, if you were the owner, what would you do? Well, you'd take aggressive action. You'd at least go to court. But at the point where your son is killed, um, extreme violence seems to be the answer here. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. That's reasonable behavior. But it is, of course, what God doesn't do in the real story of life. God sends his son, who we reject and crucify, and then offers us forgiveness. It's a remarkable story. And the thing that grabbed me when I was reading this is that it's really hard to get God to give up on you. It's really hard to get God to give up on you. However much we fail, however much we do the Frank Sinatra, I'm doing it my way, however much we try and walk in another direction, there's something irritatingly wonderful about the love of God towards you and me. He just will not give up. Trusting God isn't always easy. Serving God is often difficult, but he never gives up on us. And I think we need to get that message because we live in a, in a deeply rebellious culture. Do you, I mean, maybe it's just my advanced age, which is advanced, I'll give you that. Um, but you listen to things that are said on the news and say, did I really hear that? Is it just me, or is that bonkers? Well, it's bonkers and normal, seems to be the answer, often. And it's really easy, as people who are trying to be followers of Jesus, to be threatened by the hostility of the world around us, and to be swayed very easily by the pressure from outside. You read in the passage, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he'd this, spoken this parable against them. We didn't need a PhD in discernment to work out it was directed at them. But they were afraid of the people. It's a common leadership stance these days. No names, no politicians mentioned. We'll see what everyone wants to do and then we'll lead them in that direction. And we're called to live in a different way. In a world where you might think there are not many reasons to have hope, this isn't the first time Christians have been under pressure. G.K. Chesterton once memorably said, at least five times the faith has to all appearance gone to the dogs. In each of those five cases, it was the dog that died. If you read history, you can see periods of despair by Christians at what they were facing. If you're in China at the moment, you might be thinking, how will we survive this? 
But of course, the church is growing massively in China. God is at work, and everything set up against the king will come down. So why were the religious leaders like this? They'd suddenly encountered a radical belief in the God they purported to believe, and they couldn't handle it. I mean, not all of them were unreasonable. If you read the story of Jesus' end, when he's died, killed and buried, it's some of these very people who arrange the funeral and provide the tomb. So not all of them were like this, but it seems the majority were. And somehow they were so wedded to the establishment, their normal way of doing things. I suppose for most of them it was their career. They had lost the ability or the will to ask searching questions of themselves. There was this great group think going on. Now, how can anyone act like that? This used to be a passage many years ago. Thankfully, I haven't heard it in my lifetime. It used to be a passage preached against the Jews in sometimes a deeply anti-Semitic way. But I want to suggest it's against all of us who settle down to a comfortable conformity ticking the boxes of Christian faith. One of the questions I've thrown into the discussion for whenever you want to look at it is, why is it that good people lose their way? Because these were undoubtedly good people, originally at least. The end of the story, you know, the murderous takeover actually became the victory. It's that great paradox at the heart of Christian faith that when wicked people took the Son of God and nailed him to a cross, it was the ultimate triumph and freedom for you and me where Jesus took the sin of the world upon himself. The rejected stone became the cornerstone and how we respond to that death and subsequent resurrection on that hinges our whole eternal destiny. So it's a great story. It's, if I can say, an obvious story. The meaning is so clear. It's the story of the good news of Jesus Christ. So let me leave you with a couple of questions. This is a story of Jesus' death on the cross for you and me because God doesn't know how to give up on us. So have you started that journey of trusting God personally? You can try asking him to put a million dollars or pounds would be better, I suppose, these days uh, into a bank account in your name. Let me know if it works. You can pray for me afterwards. But actually, let me encourage you to read the Bible story itself and see how God already has made himself so clear. Or maybe you've started the journey but lost your way. And you're sat here thinking, I don't know if I belong here. 
let me say very directly to you, God never gives up on you. He never gives up on you. And you're here because he loves you deeply and passionately and wants to set you on the road again of knowing and trusting God. So that's my first question to leave you with. Have you started the journey of trusting God? The second is this. What is shaping your life? The religious leaders in the story couldn't hear the message because of their vested interest. And at the same time, couldn't act because they were afraid of how people would react. How much are we shaped by the culture around us and how much by the teachings of Jesus? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this story of your great and persistent love for the human race. And Lord, when we read the story clearly, we're amazed at how easy we find it to reject you and find other priorities to blend into the world around us so that no one finds us out. And we ask your forgiveness for that, Lord. But we thank you that that your love conquers all. And we pray that this day and going forward, you would help each of us to live as real and authentic followers of Jesus Christ, shining as a bright light in the dark world in which you've placed us. In Jesus' name, amen.